Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Ted Nordhaus, the executive director and founder of the Breakthrough Institute. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to pick Ted's brain as he is a seminal thinker within the eco-modernist movement, and I've always found his thinking to be thought-provoking and relentlessly creative and original. What recently pushed me to contact Ted and request this interview was reading his essay, The Empty Radicalism of the Climate Apocalypse. Today, we're going to delve into that piece as well as a potpourri of questions around eco-modernism, climate, and energy. Welcome to the show, Ted. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So Ted, I gave your title there, but um, I've gotten in the habit of, of having my guests introduce themselves a little further, and I always find they do a, a better and more articulate job of it than I could do. So can you go ahead and uh, just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yeah. Uh, so um, again, I'm, I'm Ted Nordhaus. Uh, I'm the founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, we focus on technological solutions to environmental problems, and we consider ourselves the world's first and original eco-modernist think tank. And Ted, I'm sure as you've noticed, uh, the name of this podcast draws its inspiration from eco-modernism and, and from your work amongst uh, the other, I guess, authors of that manifesto and that movement. Um, and that, of course, is the idea that humans can limit their impacts on the natural world um, while still flourishing as a species and eradicating poverty and other such noble goals. Um, you know, I'm a longtime uh, leftist. Um, I've been very committed to redistribution of wealth and, and class analysis, but decoupling has risen to become one of my sort of central tenets recently. And it's even led me to, you know, be arguing for making the right technological choices as, as sort of the centerpiece of my political activity. You know, when, when I was a young anti-war activist, I, I never would have imagined that I'd be, you know, leading a campaign to save a local nuclear power plant. Um, but as someone who's been deeply involved in drafting the Eco-Modernist Manifesto and the movement in general, can you explain the origins of the term decoupling as, as you've been using it? Yeah, so, um, you know, the term, uh, you know, actually uh, has been used in the sort of scholarly literature for decades. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, you have to go back and kind of do a careful analysis, but I think it really starts... Um, with a focus on um, the decoupling of um, uh, energy use from economic output um, as uh, sort of, you know, particularly, uh, again, I, I, I've never really kind of done a careful uh, look at it, but I, I'm pretty sure it mostly, it really originates um, after the oil shocks uh, of the 1970s uh, when, um, you know, developed economies, particularly high energy using economies, uh, really start uh, focusing on using energy much, much more efficiently. Um, and uh, over time, you get this dynamic where you see sort of economic growth kind of continuing apace, um, but uh, energy consumption is growing at much, uh, much smaller, uh, at, at much slower rates. Um, and then this concept gets applied beyond energy to resource uh, use and uh, also to pollution. So basically, you know, at the heart of it is really technology 
technology is what mediates the relationship between human well-being and environmental impacts. Um, and what we, um, uh, as technology gets better, you produce more with less. So that's, that's the basic um, kind of, uh, that's what the term really refers to. So, you know, I think um, critics of, of eco-modernist use of the term decoupling, um, you know, they make a distinction between uh, relative and absolute decoupling, um, you know, and, and caution, use that as a caution against so-called techno-optimism. Can you share your thoughts on that matter with us? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there is an important distinction, um, but we're really describing the same process. Um, so it's not like, you know, when you have what they call relative decoupling, which is uh, slowing um, basically where the uh, resource or energy or carbon intensity of the economy is declining, but it hasn't declined so much that the absolute amount of carbon emissions or resource inputs or whatever the factor you're looking at in terms of decoupling has absolutely declined. Um, so for instance, um, you know, if you look at um, uh, the carbon and energy intensity of developed world economies, um, after the oil shocks, the relative intensity, relative decoupling starts happening immediately. Um, and it goes on for several decades. And then it's really only around the turn of the 21st century or in the decade afterwards that these you start to see absolute decoupling. But it's not like there was some sort of new thing that started happening when absolute decoupling, when it went from relative to absolute decoupling. It was just the same process. It was increasing efficiency of resource use and energy use um, and increasingly clean energy technologies. Um, so, so the critics, um, who I argue with a lot, I think are really um, pretty disingenuous about it um, in that, um, you know, basically they will take long-term trends over, say, the last 40 or 50 years, which is a period where technology has been improving uh, but population tripled um, and huge populations moved from really, really abject extreme poverty to higher living standards and go, well, you've had this relative decoupling, but, you know, emissions have continued to rise or resource consumption has continued to rise. Well, you know, technology would have to be doing extraordinary work to reduce in absolute terms, emissions, or any other factor you were looking at at a time when population tripled. Um, so, um, you know, that's the basis of those claims. And, you know, what we've seen, especially over the last couple of decades, is actually absolute decoupling across a range of different factors, either globally or in major developed affluent economies. Um, in, in ways that the critics claim is not possible. So, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, decoupling is real. It's continuing to happen. Uh, it is, um, you know, kind of one factor around among a series of factors that determine environmental impacts. 
Um, uh, but, um, you know, all else equal decoupling will ultimately result in peak emissions, peak environmental impacts, and then declining impacts. Right. And I mean, I, I guess what you're describing is, you know, even with existing um, technologies, you know, particularly potentially environmentally damaging technologies, like, say, you know, a, a coal power plant, it could be run more efficiently, and that would achieve some degree of relative decoupling. But there are actually technologies um, that themselves seem to really promise absolute decoupling um, or, you know, have more of the promise of that. Um, what are some of those technologies that really stand out to you that, that you and the Breakthrough Institute are interested in pursuing? Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously the thing that just, just you know, one, a coal plant um, is, you know, more efficiency within the coal plant is not the kind of main driver thing that's been driving these these trends it's actually just more efficiency and and end use of energy um and the coal plant gets more efficient and they've also gotten cleaner in a variety of ways but then the thing that happens you know just to stay with the coal plant is that you know not only do the coal plants get more efficient and do we use the energy they produce more efficiently but we start switching from coal to gas or we go build you know 20% in the US or 80% in France or, you know, 15 up to, I think it got as high as maybe, maybe uh, 15% or so globally from nuclear power plants. Um, and, you know, now we're, we're uh, also, you know, seeing big growth in various renewable energy technologies. So on the energy side, you both get increasingly efficient end use uh, of energy, and you get, um, you know, just the replacement of fossil-based energy with non-fossil-based energy. Um, but, you know, it's sort of not just energy and carbon. Um, you know, you we've seen um, in many, many regions of the world, uh, um, agricultural produ production has decoupled from land use, for instance, as, as agricultural systems have gotten much more uh, efficient um, and productive. So, um, you know, in the U.S., Europe, uh, parts of Latin America, a number of other places in the world, uh, not only have we seen relative decoupling of agricultural production from farmland, but we've seen peak farmland in those places and, and actually declining uh, land use for agriculture. So you have reforestation in many parts of the world because we've abandoned agricultural lands that we just don't need anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit um, to talk about um, environmentalism in general. I, I was, uh, you know, in prepping for the interview, um, looking at uh, one of your reviews of Charles uh, C. Mann's Wizards and Prophets book. Um, you know, and this book was hugely influential for me. You know, it illuminates two very useful archetypes, which I think help to explain the tribal identities underpinning, you know, two very distinct approaches to problem solving. Wizards being these kind of cornucopians who believe that environmental challenges of a growing population can be managed through the wise application of technology and, and profits, on the other hand, who think that, you know, if we don't downscale human numbers and, and affluence, we're, we're doomed. Um, you know, any of these archetypes are sort of prone to oversimplification, but I've always found they give me kind of a useful tool to understand the rival camps within environmentalism. You know, I, I feel like the, the Death of Environmentalism essay, which you co-authored with Michael Schellenberger and the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, were the beginnings of carving out a space for wizardly thinking 
within environmentalism. Can you trace for us your history as an environmental activist? Did you undergo some kind of Paul on the road to Damascus conversion from a prophet to a wizard? Yeah, I mean, I would say I um, I went through a series of kind of conversions and or just or just kind of evolutions in my thinking over many, many years. Um, but, you know, I, I I would say a couple of things. I mean, the first is that, you know, I kind of grew up, uh, uh, a lot of people know my uncle, who was the Nobel economist who won his Nobel Prize for his work on the economics of climate change. Um, but my dad was kind of like the first environmental lawyer in Washington. Um, he wrote the Clean Air Act, the, the 1970 amendments to the Clean Air Act. He had a hand in most of the sort of big environmental and energy policy uh, achievements uh, uh, at the federal level in the U.S. in the 1970s. So I sort of grew up, you know, as identifying as an environmentalist, but also sort of in this very kind of weird uh, sort of um, kind of family environment where like, you know, I, I, you know, we sat at the dinner table and we talked about like what was actually happening in Congress. So I had a sort of view of how, you know, sort of policy actually gets made uh, from a very early age that, you know, sort of most people don't. Um, and then I spent my early career, you know, I really worked. Uh, it's funny because I get attacked as this sort of wonky elite intellectual, but I spent the first half of my career doing real grassroots environmental organizing, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from really like my early college years actually dropped out of college to run grassroots environmental campaigns, literally like door to door, knocking on door canvases um, around the country. Um, and I just spent a lot of years actually trying to explain to sort of people who are not like you and me, um, you know, who spend all their time thinking about this stuff, but people who spend almost none of their time thinking about it, why they should care about environmental concerns why they should support environmental policies, why they should support environmental organizations. Um, and so that was, you know, for me, a real education in just realizing that kind of the way that most people kind of engage politics generally and environmentalism more particularly is just radically different from the way that most of the people arguing about it on Twitter or wherever uh, do. So, so, you know, I kind of always and I worked for a bunch of years as a pollster as well. Um, and, you know, there's nothing there's no better way, uh, you know, to kind of disabuse oneself of one's sort of kind of idealism and um, sort of uh, self-involved ideas about politics than to just go like moderate a focus group or just watch a focus group of like swing voters in Indianapolis or Cleveland or someplace like that. Um, uh, just it just like like um, you know uh, if you're a committed to sort of democratic governance, this is the this is what democracy actually looks like. Um, so for me, you know, I I kind of early on in my career had a I think a more realistic view of environmental politics and and what some of the constraints on it were how sort of various environmental policies and ideas about the environment ran into, you know, really sort of radically different viewpoints, radically different experiences for people who, you know, again, don't do this kind of thing for a living. Um, 
So, uh, you know, when I really, um, you know, as I kind of moved from sort of grassroots work, I was a political consultant, I was a pollster, I was, um, you know, kind of, you know, in various ways sort of moving up as one moves through one's career, the food chain. Um, You know, I just sort of started seeing that a lot of the, you know, both the sort of policy agenda and the kind of framing uh, communications, uh, political strategy that really shaped the sort of dominant environmental paradigm were just kind of wildly out of touch with what people cared about, uh, how they kind of navigated their own worlds. Um, so in, in some sense, that was kind of at the core of my journey. Uh, you know, it starts, it starts, and if you go back and you really, you read the death of environmentalism, it really starts as a political analysis and a political critique um, of the strategies of the movement. And really, if you went, you go back and you read death of environmentalism, there's like no nuclear energy in there. Um, It's really just about sort of how we rethink and, and sort of reframe the effort to deal with climate change. And at that time, we were really focused on renewable energy. So it's not until you know, four or five years later, um, as we kind of dove deeper into sort of a set of the issues with the kind of existing environmental framework for dealing with climate change that we end up at things like nuclear energy. Um, But um, uh, so for me, like the first thing was kind of going like, you know, there's just sort of something fundamentally wrong here with the environmental agenda. Um, uh, and, and with the politics around it. And then we start rethinking that agenda. And if you go back and you read Death of Environmentalism, we're really talking about this idea of a big public investment focused around sort of building a new economy that would be more, uh, that, that could produce shared prosperity for more people. Um, and then it's really, uh, as we kind of dive deeper into kind of the limitations of the you know, of the environmental movement sort of policy commitment that we actually end up going nice. like, well, not only do we need to invest in, uh, you know, to make public investments in technology, but we need to reconsider the sorts of technologies we're investing in. Yeah, it's interesting you, you're talking about uh, breakthrough, both the, the essay um, and, and the book. You know, you talk a lot about in that book about the, the generation that invented environmentalism was sort of this kind of post-material generation. And, and indeed, some of the moments that sort of sparked the movement, like the fire on the Cuyahoga River, um, you know, that that river had burst into flames on, on many previous occasions. But, you know, the 1969 episode sort of caught the attention of that generation because they were, you know, relieved of the sort of material needs that um, that previous generations had, you know, spent their lives sort of toiling for. Um, and in, in also, you know, having their material needs met has led to a certain a certain type of politics, which, you know, at times, perhaps, you know, is, is taking on more of that sort of prophetic undertone and whose solutions are sometimes a little bit counterintuitive. Can you tell me a little bit more about you know, how you see this, this sort of this generation that's, that's post-materialist in nature and, and the orientation that their, their politics are taking them in? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's funny because I kind of started thinking about post-material politics, like back in the eighties, um, you know, and back then we had this very, you know, we had this very idealistic idea about it, which was that, um, you know, like once everyone kind of got their kind of basic material needs met, we would all sort of shift our 
our focus towards quality of life, towards, um, you know, being fully self-actualized, um, uh, towards kind of like, you know, what a kind of good society looked like, um, uh, you know, and, and not just sort of constantly trying to come up with new ways to produce more. Um, and I think that, you know, you get, you know, uh, you know, whatever, 30 years later, I look at that and I look at a lot of what's happening, certainly in American politics, but I think much more broadly as well. And, uh, I think I have a, a, you know, a much more, um, a much less idealistic view of what post-material politics looks like. Because the thing that happens is that once uh, every, once kind of everyone gets rich enough that our politics is not sort of centrally about kind of, you know, growing enough food to feed ourselves or building sewage systems um, uh, and basic kind of infrastructure uh, that is sort of necessary for people to live modern lives. Um, uh, you lose this really kind of pretty important and sort of disciplining kind of dynamic in politics. Um, and so we talk a lot now about identity politics, and I think it's often used to refer to really just a subset of identities, um, really around sort of racial, gender, sexual identity. Uh, and the various intersections between them, but kind of like really uh, identity politics is post-material politics. Everybody becomes, you know, as we get richer (laughs) and as we're not like, you know, you don't, you know, if you look at sort of pre-industrial societies, like most of those societies, everyone has to just get up in the morning and go like, haul water and collect firewood and, and try to grow enough food to feed themselves. That's, you know, go back to like 1800 and, and 90% of the American population to take one example works in agriculture. Um, so when you get to like 2% in agriculture and most people not even in manufacturing and we're all doing these sort of knowledge and service type activities to sort of, that's most of the economy and everyone's kind of much richer. Um, no one has, a, almost no one has to get up in the morning and kind of and, and try to grow food or do any of these really basic things, you know, our, our politics gets sort of detached from all of that. And it gets much more centered around our various identities and ideas about ourselves and aspirations and ideas of what, uh, what sort of, you know, various ideas of various sort of sorts of utopias that we want to live in. Um, and, and, and there's an untethering of sorts that happens. Um, so, uh, you know, I think when you look at kind of the, the, the sort of almost religious passion in some ways that's kind of come back into politics in a lot of places, I think it is a, a, a function of this sort of post-material politics where people are no longer, um, you, you know, there's no, you know, we talk a lot about sort of post-truth or, or um, you know, fake news and all these things, but it's sort of like, like, you know, we just go there, there, there's no, there's no apparent immediate consequences, um, to bad ideas, uh, in the way that there are when you're sort of really, um, kind of, uh, in, in much more sort of marginal circumstances. Um, and so the result is that, you know, we get these, you know, we get people arguing for degrowth. We get people arguing for, um, you know, you get the sort of Naomi Klein sort of extractivism. You get these sort of 
elaborate intellectual fantasies that kind of move to the center of our politics. And obviously we see the same thing on the right as well. Um, and, and I think it makes it much, much more difficult to sort of, in some ways, to kind of mobilize societies to solve these post-industrial, post-material, sort of post-modern problems versus like, it's a lot easier to kind of mobilize a society to like build sewage systems and things like that, because um, these are sort of really, really proximate, immediate problems with real obvious consequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, in terms of uh, post-material concerns, there's still a lot of sort of status anxiety and, and economic uncertainty, particularly, let's say, within middle America right now. And that, that's probably reflected in, in voting patterns. So, you know, do you think there's like this objectively defined set of material conditions that, you know, leads you to be sort of post-material in your politics or, you know, is it much more relative within society? Well, that's the shift, right? I, I mean, the big shift is you move from you know, like most people in pre-industrial societies living in absolute poverty um, to relative um, poverty and relative inequality, um, where kind of almost everyone has, you know, their basic material needs met. But obviously we have huge, huge uh, disparities in um, access to resources, in life opportunities, uh, and, 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 you know, just more basic things like, you know, uh, you know, um, who gets to live in a, in a thousand square foot, you know, apartment or a 500 square foot apartment versus a, a 3000 square foot, um, you know, McMansion. Um, so these are the kinds of, um, sort of status, uh, you know, and there's a whole set of them of sort of status anxieties that kind of really move to the center of politics. Um, uh, and, and so, so, you know, and, 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 and I don't want to be dismissive of it. Um, I mean, these are real things. These are real concerns. We're sort of social creatures in all sorts of ways. Um, and, you know, if you're kind of struggling to make the payments on your pickup truck and your, and your, um, you know, duplex, <laughs> um, in the suburbs, you know, hearing that, you know, imagine if you had to get up every day um, and uh, haul water and firewood is not uh, actually, um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's not a very satisfying uh, uh, answer. I think, you know, the politics of the left were, were a lot more clear when, when you were mentioning it was around arguing around the remediation or, or of achieving basic material needs, like getting that sewage system installed or just building, you know, basic infrastructure that would allow some of the benefits of modern life. And I, I think it's ironic these days to see populist right wing figures using the language of the old left. You know, I think Trump actually used the word working class and mm-hmm. uh, more locally, you know, I think left parties avoid that that kind of term like the plague in Canada, for instance, our, our left party um, omits the definite article of the from talking about the people and they end up with these kind of awkward uh, phrases um, to try and out center the center where they'll talk about like a child care plan for people. And it's just it's just really awkward. And, and it's kind of humorous. You know, the the populace right now is posturing as the protector of the material interests of of the working class. 
as you know, so-called progressive places like your home state of California alienate these people with policies that drive up electricity bills or punish them for having longer commutes because they have to live in the suburbs where they can actually afford housing. You know, you've called for the death of environmentalism so that it could reinvent itself, you know, into something more relevant and effective. Do you think it's time for something similar to occur with the new left? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, the left is a, is, is just is just lost and it's been lost for a long time. Um, and, you know, to your point, um, you know, basically the 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 um, the posts, you know, that the. the the, the sort of crisis for the left, um, you know, is it really occurs sort of relatively early in the post-war era, which is that, you know, remember, uh, you know, the old left believed that capitalism was going to immiserate the working classes. And, you know, you get to the late 50s, 60s in the U.S. and Europe and like and like these capitalist, you know, are obviously always mixed, but uh, capital mixed capitalist economies have like the wealthiest working classes um, in the history of of human societies. Um, and so, you know, the 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 reaction and 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 and, uh, you know, the new left, um, you know, makes us it stops being a, a left that is sort of characterized by working classes. Um, you know, remember Marx is like the, the proletariat are the, is the revolutionary class. Um, well, you get to the fifties and sixties and, and, uh, Marcuse most famously, uh, and all of these sort of Frankfurt school, uh, leftist intellectuals, um, who've left Europe for the U S and then are just horrified, um, at these sort of mass consumption conformist, uh, uh, working classes in the U.S. decide that actually um, the working classes, the proletariat, are not the revolutionary class. Um, they're hopeless. The students are the re- revolutionary class. And so, you know, out of the new left, you get this reorientation of the left around elite, you know, really around the sort of um, ideas of, of these sort of educated elite populations. And, and you look at kind of left parties uh, almost everywhere in the developed world. Um, and, um, you know, at least in Marxist terms, they're on the wrong side of the class divide um, uh, for the most part. Um, so, so and, and kind of like the last thing that, you um, Kind of, kind of makes it sort of identifiable um, as as, as left wing parties. There's kind of this um, sort of you know a tendency to be much more kind of open to multicultural societies. Um, um, but 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 even there, I mean, you know, certainly in the U.S., you look at this last election. You know, Trump gets more of the non-white vote um, than any Republican since 1960. Um, wow. So. So you start seeing, uh, you know, to your point, this sort of politics reorienting along uh, kind of class and education lines um, where uh, the core constituencies of the right or a lot of that core constituency is actually, uh, you know, working class, non-college educated, uh, you know, and the left, um, you know, except for, you know, in the U.S., it's um, sort of multicultural wing. Um, is on the wrong side of the class divide, uh, you know, again, at least, uh, you know, in the ways that that has had any meaning in sort of the left-right 
um, kind of political divide. So, so, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, and the left becomes hostile towards economic growth, uh, towards consumption, um, uh, towards, you know, frankly, centralized institutions in a whole bunch of ways um, uh, that I wrote about in that um, empty radicalism piece that kind of actually make any kind of coherent, actual sort of left political agenda uh, impossible. Um, so, so for all those reasons, you know, I do think the left is in desperate need of reinvention. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that I think it may, that may actually come from the right. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a set of folks on the, you know, coming out of the sort of, uh, Republican party, um, who in some ways have like a much more coherent class agenda than almost anyone on the left does. That's very true. I've been noticing that as well. Um, so, uh, you know, despite the, the lofty rhetoric and calls for like a World War II level mobilization by climate activists in the left, um, you, you argue in that essay you're referencing, the empty radicalism of the climate apocalypse, that what they're proposing is very, very modest. Um, you know, there's a, there's a big disconnect between what the environmental left says about capitalism and the role of government and what they actually are proposing to do about climate change. You know, what, what would a bold radicalism on climate change that could deliver the goods look like? I mean, I guess I should be, I should, I should kind of come clean in that I'm skeptical that, that um, kind of certainly uh, post, that post-industrial societies are actually capable of this. Um, you know, my, you know, at the bottom of that, of that essay is, you know, I kind of go like, watch what people do, not what they say. Um, so when you kind of go, the people who say they're most concerned about climate change um, and think that we have to completely reinvent society. And then you look at what they actually propose and it's just kind of green neoliberalism at, at, at bottom. Um, and, and I, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, I think that the thing that happens when societies get wealthy is we all become much more individuated and we become much less willing to accept sort of social and political authorities of all sorts. Um, so, so on the one hand, if you kind of went like climate change is like a big asteroid heading for the planet and we've got 10 years to just completely decarbonize the global economy, you know, you would, uh, uh, and we're going to do a world war two style mobilization, you know, it really looks like, um, uh, you know, it's much more sort of centralized. It looks like the French nuclear build out, um, or, you know, it looks like, um, uh, you know, like literally you would nationalize big sectors of, uh, you know, certainly carbon intensive, energy intensive sectors of every economy in the world. And you would just fully retool them um, with kind of big centralized, you know, obviously, you know, if you wanted tomorrow to just completely decarbonize the power sector, you just start building big like Gen 2, Gen 3 nuclear plants as fast as you can. Um, and I think there's a reason that we won't do that. Um, and that's because we just aren't, there's just the levels of sort of social trust, um, you know, sort of necessary to sort of hand big chunks of the economy off to sort of technocratic, bureaucratic management, which is what's actually required to do that. I just don't think we're willing to do it. Um, I don't think we can sort of sustain enough 
sort of social cohesiveness and social consensus to do any of those things. So on, in, in some sense, I do, uh, as much as I think the left is lost, I do sort of think the future to some degree is kind of neoliberal um, that, and that the choices are between kind of a sort of warmed over neoliberalism and a sort of warmed over sort of state authoritarian state capitalism. Um, and because that is the, the um, you know, at a sort of the level of kind of political economy and at the level of social values, um, you know, outside of, you know, uh, you know, perhaps China and a few other places um, with very different political cultures and also at very at, at, at somewhat different stages in, in their industrialization and development. I just don't think you can kind of sustain the sort of political consensus that would be necessary to do the sort of radical climate mobilization that everyone sort of talks about being as being needed. Um, you know, so I think the result is that we're just we just end up kind of muddling through um, innovation and sort of more decentralized technological change becomes um, sort of the primary vehicle. I don't think that we're going to sort of do a big centralized national or global builds of nuclear power plants. I don't think we're going to put in place a globally harmonized price on carbon. I don't think we're going to do any of these things. It's it's just going to be sort of, uh, you know, if we're successful, we'll accelerate technological change um, in sort of more kind of decentralized and capillary ways. And I still think, for instance, nuclear energy could be a big part of that. Um, but I think the nuclear technologies will look very different than sort of the ones that have been successfully deployed in the past. So I definitely want to circle back to uh, to energy and uh, and particularly to to nuclear. But um, you know, you you've talked about um, how the left and the environmental movement often frames um, climate change as an asteroid strike, and I think laments the fact that if we were threatened by an asteroid. There could be this kind of global plan and marshalling of our resources to, to neutralize that threat. Um, you, on the other hand, have described um, climate change as more of a wicked problem akin to diabetes, right? Like a, a chronic condition. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I, I think you're imagining probably a fairly mild case in a, in a relatively healthy middle class diabetics. They may be in their 50s. Sugars are decently controlled. They're getting good medical care. But you know, I might be biased as an emergency doctor who sees kind of the bad cases here. But, you know, as you know, many diabetics develop kidney failure, heart attacks and strokes, even at a young age from poorly managed disease. You know, I, I really like that analogy to diabetes. Um, but sometimes I feel like it's used as an argument for incrementalism. Like we, we really need to stop eating donuts or, or burning fossil fuels and, and choose healthy alternatives like like nuclear power. Um, and I mean, the other issue is that, you know, the complications of this disease are, are not just visited on you and I, but they face, you know, our, our children and our grandchildren. So like panic is, is never a good place to make sound decisions from, but, you know, an alarm that, that motivates, you know, a clear eco-modernist approach and maybe challenges some of, you know, the, you know, the inevitability of, of kind of this energy market liberalization you're talking about, um, you know, seems to me to be appropriate. I, I know you guys at Breakthrough are sort of the arch pragmatists and are sort of working within the constraints of, of those systems. But um, like BTI is, is sometimes accused of being complacent on climate change. How, how do you feel about that that accusation? 
I don't think we're complacent, but I also, you know, I think that we, I mean, look, the, um, I do think diabetes is the right analogy. Um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, if you leave it totally, if you leave it untreated and, and in combination with lots of other sorts of, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, as, as a emergency, uh, physician and, and probably knowing a bit about, um, sort of the public health, uh, kind of, you know, we know that, that, that sort of the big drivers of this, you know, if you kind of look at what predicts it are, are what people call the, so, you know, the social determinants of health, um, you know, that, that we can say, well, it's the sugar, but actually, um, it's not the sugar, it's poverty. It's, um, it's, it's living on the margins. It's, it's sort of not having control over your life and your environment in all sorts of ways. Um, so, so, so for me, when I think about climate change and when I think about sort of, you know, I, I, I don't think, uh, I'm not a climate catastrophist, but I, I think there are better and worse outcomes. Um, uh, and, and the drivers of those outcomes are not solely going to be, you know, how quickly we cut emissions. It's also going to be, uh, how rapidly societies develop, what kinds of infrastructure, what kinds of, um, uh, technology people have at their disposal. Um, so, um, you know, we talk a lot about the sort of, uh, uh, the, the catastrophes that climate change is going to visit upon the global poor, but we talk about that without actually talking about the catastrophes that are just regularly visited on the global poor. You, you have this amazing analogy that I, I heard elsewhere, but it's this, I, I call it like the Mad Max analogy. Can you, can you just uh, humor me and share that with our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, um, look, if in, 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 the, in, in, in developed, wealthy developed economies, this sort of the climate apocalypse that we all are terrified of, which is this sort of Mad Max world of failed states and um, uh, kind of uh, resource scarcity um, and, and um, just sort of a total breakdown of, of social systems. Um, I mean, that's the thing we're terrified of, right? Um, well, you know, there's about a billion people around the world that that's just their life. You know, um, uh, that's, you know, uh, we have failed states today. And the primary thing that is 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 uh, behind their failure is not climate change. Um, you know, so if you, uh, you know, are living in Yemen or uh, Somalia or many other parts of the world today, um, uh, that 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 that's life. That's not the breakdown of society. That's just um, you know sort of what the world uh, has looked like and has been like for a long time. And insofar as something's broken down, it hasn't broken down because of climate change. Um, it's sort of broken down because of a, a, a range of sort of political and economic failures. Um, so so you know, and and this is my point is that is that you know. Uh, you know, diabetes is a is a is a condition that um, you know, in the right circumstances, um, uh, we can manage pretty well. Um, and uh, in in the wrong circumstances, is you know, is in fact catastrophic for people. Um, um, you know, but but actually, the thing that's determining whether it's a manageable condition or it's catastrophe is mostly not how much sugar people eat. <laughs> 
right? But the, the level of uh, development that allows for adaptation and, and infrastructure that, that can Yeah, protect. how much control yeah. do you have over your life? You know, yeah, are you in an emergency room seeing you um, yeah. uh, with an untreated condition? Uh, yeah. Or, you know, are you kind of regularly... You know, do you have an attending physician who who uh, is keeping track, uh, you know, of of the condition uh, is 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 helping is medicating it? Uh, you know, you just again and again and again, you know, I you look at, um, you know, I look a lot at like these sort of disparate rates on, say, uh, like emergency room admissions uh, around asthma. And the big thing that predicts that is not actually exposure to pollution. It's just access to health care. Um, and, you know, sort of poor populations, you know, end up, uh, you know, in emergency rooms uh, with very severe asthma attacks where, you know, uh, richer populations, you know, have inhalers and, and medications and various other things that, that keep them out of emergency rooms and out of really extreme situations. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. So, I mean, in terms of the things that, that preoccupy me with climate change, I mean, the, the physical impacts are there for sure. But, you know, the sort of socioeconomic and political responses are, I find those to probably be the most immediately concerning things. There's a book by um, a Canadian war correspondent and journalist, Gwyn Dyer, um, called Climate Wars. And, um, you know, he was writing probably during the George W. Bush presidency and running into a lot of obstructionism from official government figures when trying to ask them about climate change. But he had a lot of contacts within the military from his work as a as a war correspondent. And when he started, you know, poking and they'd speak off the record, they would mention that they, yes, they were actively planning and wargaming climate change scenarios. And one of the examples that I think was most startling to me and sort of predicts, in a sense, where U.S. politics has gone since this was published in 2008 was that U.S. military planners were anticipating, you know, increasingly severe, severe droughts in Central America that that could, again, increase immigration flows to the USA. And so one of the wargaming things they had was the idea of erecting a border wall. <laughs> You know, and it, it was so asinine that they were talking about, well, you know, a wall isn't sufficient. Like if you really want to cr- prevent people from crossing a border, you need to be willing to shoot them. And then they were mm-hmm. thinking, well, there's a large Latino population in the States that's going to lead to civil unrest. How would we manage that? So, you know, it's it's um, it's very interesting seeing that these these things are being war gamed um, and that the again, the sort of political ramifications of the stresses of climate change are, are something that are, you know, this is something that really worry me. And I know avocado politics is something that's kind of come up at the breakthrough. I think um, Nils Gilman has been sort of pursuing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the mass shootings as well, where there's these manifestos left behind justifying their actions based on environmental grounds. This is this is really concerning. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. And, and again, I think, you know, we have to pay attention to to what degree, um, you know, what's driving that is other factors and and then a sort of discord, you know, in in what sense is this a rationalization for doing things you want to do anyway um, for, you know, sort of racism and nativism, um, uh, uh, you know, versus like, is that what is actually at the core of the problem? I mean, you know, since, for instance, uh, those uh, various those scenarios you're talking about were um, produced, actually, immigration to the U.S. from Central America and and Mexico is way down. Um, It's not up. Um, uh, So, um, you know, whatever climate change is doing in Central and Latin America, um, uh, you know, um, 
it is not dry. You know, immigration's way down, and it was way down long before you know Trump was president. Um, uh, it's been falling since since about 2010. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 mostly, uh, you know, uh, there's various analyses for it, but it's it's. Um, uh, you know, a big part of it has just been just there's actually more economic a- a- opportunity. You know, Mexico is a middle class country now. Um, there's actually less opportunity for sort of migrant um, uh, labor in the U.S., not because of immigration restrictions, but just because agriculture needs less labor than it did 30 or 40 years ago. So there's a bunch of reasons why, um, you know, immigration flows have changed. Um and again, you have climate change, you have drought, you have various issues, um, but they're always being, you know, they're always in, in relationship to kind of a, a variety of other sort of geopolitical and macroeconomic factors. And so I don't want to, you know, I, I'm aware of the fact that in pointing these things out, it can sound like I'm being totally dismissive of climate change. Um, and I'm not. Um uh, you know, it's real. It makes lots of problems worse. Um, and we should be doing everything we can. But I think when we get sort of in this sort of monomaniacal kind of apocalyptic frame about climate change, I think we kind of, um, it sort of points us in the wrong sorts of directions, um, uh, both in terms of sort of solutions and also just in terms of our kind of general think it sort of drives us towards um, much more sort of zero-sum thinking um, as opposed to more sort of expansive, generous, inclusive thinking. Um, you know, one expression of that is the sort of kind of avocado politics that Mills wrote about. Um, but, you know, we see it in a variety of, uh, uh, of other ways uh, as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you get uh, sort of this apocalyptic kind of climate movement that then basically sort of starts insisting that anybody with a different view, not only of the problem, but the solutions is a climate denier. Um, So, um, you know, I, I think that, that, that this kind of apocalyptic climate politics takes us places, a variety of places that certainly personally, I don't want to go. Ted, I want to uh, respect your time. And there's a couple areas that I I really want to get to, um, particularly within um, energy and the breakthrough institutes, um, you know, what they advocate your guys approach. Um, You've said that there are some who would turn eco-modernism into a kind of nuclear cargo cult. Um, Energy is obviously the kind of master resource and nuclear really is alone at the towering heights of the energy density pyramid, shall we say. Um, and as a result, it's a you know very profoundly um, capable decoupling technology with you know really low material inputs, land footprint, waste stream, et cetera. You know, dispatchable non-combustion renewables like hydro and geothermal, I think, have a really important role to play as well. But I'm I'm kind of puzzled by Breakthrough Institute's embrace of solar. Um, you know, beyond being energy dilute and material intensive and having high system integration costs. You know, it's just, it's always struck me as unusual that, you know, intermittent sources to generate electrons, which needs to be produced and consumed, like almost immediately in a perfect balance of supply and demand. It just, it, it it kind of defies common sense to me that these are considered as really serious tools, even for electricity production, nevertheless, decarbonization and and decoupling energy from CO2 emissions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's, um, Look, anyone who has um, spent even a little bit of time paying attention to 
how badly we get energy futures wrong uh, should have a lot of humility about making strong claims about technological futures. Um, so uh, I, I am pretty certain that we're not going to go to a 100% variable renewable energy system. Um, and I think that there are real limits to sort of how much of uh, the global energy economy, much, uh, you know, uh, or even uh, the kind of global electricity generation, we're going to power with solar and wind. Um, on the other hand, I think it's entirely plausible. We might get to 20, 30 percent of global primary energy uh, from variable renewable sources of energy from solar and wind. Um, I think that uh, uh, at those levels uh, and with a variety of firm uh, generate low carbon resources uh, alongside them, you know, I think that may prove a pretty effective, um, uh, plausible, uh, economically viable path. Um, and, and, and so, you know, um, I, 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 I am inclined to agree with folks who are like, you know, very high renewable systems, 100%, much less 100% is just implausible. Um, but then I think a lot of the folks who believe that and make that argument then um, kind of say, therefore, um, there's no role for these technologies. And I just think that's, um, you know, frankly, uh, um, uh, I think it's unwise and I think it's, um, uh, you know, I think, frankly, it's not really uh, very well supported. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, frankly, kind of, um, uh, it's, it's sort of every bit as arrogant as people who insist that we can do it all with renewables. I want to move on a little bit to to natural gas. Um, Breakthrough has been quite supportive of, of fracking and natural gas. Um, and I think, you know, it kind of celebrates it as a textbook example of a strategic government investment that's made cleaner, if not clean energy cheap. And, and you guys note that the majority of U.S. emissions reductions have been as a result of the substitution of natural gas for coal. You know, Breakthrough Institute has been hounded by the environmental movement for taking this position, despite the fact that the environmental movement until very recently was taking money from natural gas companies and supporting natural gas as a, as a bridging fuel. But, you know, nowadays there's some who argue that natural gas is as bad as coal. And I think on air pollution, water pollution and envir environmental impact grounds, this is really laughable. On climate grounds, with methane being, you know, many times more potent greenhouse gas than, than uh, CO2 and fugitive emissions from the wellhead to, you know, your home heating appliance um, being less and less regulated. Like, is this a reasonable argument, the, the fugitive emissions argument, um, making natural gas in terms of its climate impacts and emissions impacts as bad as coal, or is that ridiculous? It's nonsense. I mean, look, it clearly, methane leakage erodes the advantage, the, the climate advantage. It does not uh, erode it entirely or even close to entirely. Um, and, and to get there, you have to take, um, you know, the most, the worst outlier studies um, from the most ideological sort of uh, scholar out there, uh, who is this guy Howarth. Um, and then 
you have to use 20 year warming potential as opposed to 100 year warming potential, which is the relevant uh, metric in terms of of actual uh, uh, warming at, at at climate scales and at the at the scales that we care about. Um, uh, to kind of even even remotely support that conclusion. Um, so, you know, if you want to get to zero, you got to get rid of all the gas and you got to do that uh, not over the next decade, uh, but you got to do it over the next sort of 50 years. Um, uh, and I think there's a bunch of reasons to think, you know, why actually uh, um, that will happen. There's lots of, you know, sort of concern which I think is mostly concerned trolling about, oh, we're building all this gas infrastructure and then we'll have it be impossible to make it go away. Um, but I think actually, um, you know, the, the thing that's really unique about gas is that um, even with low gas prices, um, you know, the sort of the, the capital uh, side of the sort of gas cost equation is very, uh, is, is relatively minimal. Um, so, so the sort of costs are still mostly on combustion of fuel. So even after you've built the infrastructure, the pipelines and, the and the generation facilities and everything else, um, it's, it's a low, um, uh, most of the cost basis is variable. So, um, if you don't fully, you know, if you use that infrastructure at much lower capacities, it's still economically, uh, viable. Um, as opposed to almost every other energy technology, which is where once you make the capital investment, there's huge incentives for a very long time to maximize um, production from that capital. And that's true of a coal plant. That's true of a nuclear plant. And it's true of solar and wind. Mm -hmm. So the fugitive emissions thing is um, you, you think it's drawing off of outlying studies and not not uh, reflective of kind of a scientific consensus. But absolutely. OK, but it's a canard. Right. Honestly. Um, and is deregulation of, you know, controls on fugitive emissions, a significant variable that could tip the scales on that or no? I mean, look, I think we should we should kind of uh, I think that we should regulate fugitive emissions. I think that 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 um, there's a bunch of ways to do that in, in, in intelligent ways. It's also worth noting that the thing, the fugitive emission, that it's actually the fuel. So so there's an economic argument for capturing that as well. Right, right. Um, so um, so, yeah, um, you know, uh, I have no objection to uh, regulating the fugitive emissions. And I do not think that the fugitive emissions um, are uh, a kind of um, deal breaker or sort of uh, uh, something that kind of if we can't capture every fugitive emission, we shouldn't do gas. I think that's just, a, you know, I, I would just say that that. Um, these sort of fugitive emission arguments um, and this sort of uh, um, kind of claim that methane emissions make coal, make gas as bad as coal. I mean, just kind of put your nuclear hat on and think about all of the kind of nonsense anti-nuclear claims that the right. environmental community has made over decades. And these these claims about gas are being are, are literally exactly the same and they are being produced in exactly the same way. And then they are being very sort of credulously repeated by sort of media 
um, voices, uh, even main, quite mainstream media voices that have always, to some degree, been sort of stenographers for the environmental movement. Um, so, so it's like, it's like, you know, obviously, you know, one can kind of look at these claims, um, uh, you know, empirically. But I would just sort of suggest that, um, you know, if you're skeptical of environmental claims about nuclear, you should be skeptical of environmental claims about methane and natural gas. So speaking about nuclear, um, Alex Tremblath of the Breakthrough Institute noted in his uh, critique of Michael Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never book that, you know, the large scale deployments of nuclear have generally occurred in the context of both top down kind of state controlled electrical systems and critically domestic shortages of fossil fuels. Do you think cheap um, natural gas in in America, for instance, is is killing nuclear? I mean, I I, I think that it is. Um, I mean, if you look at where uh, it has really kind of uh, harmed nuclear and, and and sort of been a major contributing factor to nuclear cl- closures, it's in places where we've liberalized electricity uh, electricity markets. So. Um, uh, you know, again, I think that, that if you looked at, you know, natural gas is cheap everywhere. Um, if you look at where the closures are, uh, it's where we've moved to this sort of neoliberal, um, uh, kind of liberalized, uh, electricity market structure. Um, so, um, you know, yes, gas is a factor, um, uh, and, um, uh, in in some of the closures, um, you know, cheap gas makes it e- easier. On the other hand, like, um, you know, if you really see a future uh, for that sort of nuclear, um, you know, it's not in these liberalized systems. So, you know, my big issue with, you know, not just Michael's claims, but those of a lot of uh, or, or others uh, in the sort of nuclear community is I just think they're not transparent about the sort of economic and sort of political preconditions for sustaining or building that sort of nuclear. And that's much more sort of sort of state led centralized um, uh, power systems, which, you know, I'm skeptical we're going to do that in a lot of places, but I have no objection to it. I would support it. Um, uh, I think you've also you've also stated it is, you know, probably the most direct and efficient route to deep decarbonization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 like I just think that like this thing that kind of goes like like, you know, pandering to sort of the right, which like basically loves to use nuclear to troll environmentalists, but is right. actually unwilling um, to uh, just has no interest in supporting the sorts of um uh, you know, economic um, or institutional contexts in which, uh, you know, certainly conventional nuclear could thrive. I just think it's disingenuous. Do you think, I mean, <clears throat> Breakthrough endorses a strategy that instead embraces a kind of an SMR approach uh, because I think of, you know, a, a deep pragmatism and a kind of maybe kind of Francis Fukuyama end of history acceptance that energy market liberalization is inevitable. Um, this is maybe a bit of a um, provocative question. I'm asking a bit tongue in cheek, but by being so pragmatic in shaping your policy around the perceived in- inevitability and irreversibility of energy market liberalization, is is the Breakthrough Institute guilty of an empty radicalism on on energy or on eco modernism? Well, I mean, 
I don't think it's radical. <laughs> uh, you know, to be an empty radicalism, it would have to be a kind of radicalism. And, you know, maybe I'm just getting old, but I, 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 I don't, um, I just don't think we're going to remake the world in that way. Um, and, you know, I am, uh, you know, I think Fukuyama has been sort of, you know, the popular interpretation, especially on the left of Fukuyama is just so dumbed down, um, you know, that, 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 you know, I think the thing that Fukuyama is getting at, and I, I agree with it, um, you know, is really a view of sort of how social values evolve um, in sort of late modern, late capitalist societies. Um, and, um, you know, I think that for better and worse, um, uh, it places sort of constraints on what governments are, are willing to do. And, you know, the, I, the reference to the, you know, the empty radicalism is really, uh, re it's really ultimately referring to these sort of late modern um, uh, sort of post-material constituencies, particularly in the developed West, sort of trafficking in these sort of revolutionary fantasies um, who actually, I think, have actually, um, uh, you know, no willingness uh, to actually kind of support the sorts of, of, of sort of reorganization of the, of, of societies, you know, and constraints on their own freedoms, um, uh, that would be necessary for anything like that to ever happen. And that at bottom is really Fukuyama's point. Fukuyama is with sort of the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the death of the old left, the left really sort of, um, has no theory of history. Um, it has um, sort of no actual alternative to sort of, you know, a sort of democratic capitalism in a mixed economy um, that the, that that at bottom, what what gets sort of dressed up with lots of radical claims is just sort of social democracy. And I'm all for social democracy. And I think we can do a lot better across a lot, you know, on a lot of these uh, issues. And I think that. Um, you know, as I've said elsewhere, you know, what we're really mostly arguing about what mix is the right mix in a mixed economy um, uh, with a mix of sort of private sector markets and and sort of public sector uh, provision of goods and services. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I um, uh, uh, you know, um, it may be empty, but it's not radicalism. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yes, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. So, Ted, just to close off, um, you know, you have this background um, right from, you know, the very bottom of working within the environmental movement, the door knocking you mentioned, running campaigns, polling. Um, you know, California is experiencing a lot of blackouts, rising electricity co costs, and Diablo Canyon is scheduled for what sounds like a absolutely politically motivated closure in 2025. Um, does, does Breakthrough Institute take a position on, on saving Diablo Canyon? Um, or are you yeah, I mean, we support saving it. Um, again, maybe it's just, I'm too much a pragmatist, but I, I just think it's extremely unlikely. Um, um, you know, uh, I just, um, I don't think that, you know, I keep trying to think my way through to some sort of kind of deal or political equation or something that kind of shifts the state um, 
you know, motivates the state to sort of take action to keep it operating. And I just think it's really hard. And, you know, we talk a lot about blackouts and things like that, but, you know, um, uh, the, 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 you know, the main sort of driver of blackouts over the last couple of years has been the fire situation, not um, sort of insufficient generation capacity. And there were, you know, a very limited set of blackouts this summer. Um, but I don't think it's it's remotely sufficient to kind of convince policymakers in this what is now a kind of one party progressive state to reconsider that decision. Um, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but, um, you know, uh, and, and we you know, like happy to add my name to kind of just about any proposal to reopen Diablo. Uh, You know, we should do it, but I I think it's extremely unlikely to happen. Right, right. No, I mean, I think that's what kind of most strikes me about about Breakthrough is that that pragmatism. And, you know, when I think about your work as a pollster um, and kind of focus grouping, um, you know, it's it's very reflective, I guess, of reality as it is, or or maybe building policy and strategy um, based on those focus groups. you know, as opposed to sort of more of an aspirational politics that tries to um, bring people along with you to a new idea and advocate, um, like is breakthrough just not so much in the in the business of advocacy, like in terms of trying to change the facts on the gra- on the ground um, to support the ongoing uh, management of, of Diablo Canyon. I mean, you know, I on some level, like you know, I'm an old kind of Olinsky organizer, which is you start with where people are. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of uh, impulses of sort of intellectual elites to think that they can kind of go um, and sort of um, uh, kind of change people's values. You know, I started doing a lot of work years ago, like when we wrote Death of Environmentalism, thinking that we could really kind of accelerate the evolution of values. And I just don't believe it anymore. Um, um, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, as I've come to understand where I think what is so radical and disruptive in our work and actually in some sense in eco-modernism, when it grounds itself in a pragmatic view is not this sort of utopian aspirational, Hey, look at this beautiful world in some indeterminate future where there are no trade-offs, I think what's really radical about eco-modernism and what's radical in our work in Breakthrough is actually, um, you know, if you look at environmental debates historically, it has been, um, uh, you know, a sort of utopian environmental civil society on one side of these debates and industry and government on the other, um, sort of defending things like nuclear power plants. And I think what has been so radically disruptive over the last decade, especially, is when eco-modernists and, and, and folks like us start showing up in these environmental debates on the other side of these technologies as, civil, as, as committed uh, civil society voices saying, no, you know what, actually, we need to keep those nuclear plants running. In fact, we need to go build a bunch more of them. Actually, you know, we need highly productive, large-scale agriculture. Um, um, and, and that's what's radical and that's what's made us so controversial is our willingness. And it's why people always want to try to claim that, you know, we're taking money from some nefarious interest or another or we're right wingers or whatever is because we actually show up in these debates and we're like, no, we're not industry. We're not government. 
Um, you know, we're Democrats, we're pragmatists. Um, um, we're, we're actually, you know, in much of our sensibility progressives. Um, and we believe in nuclear energy. We believe in intensive, highly productive, ag large-scale agriculture. We believe in GMOs. Um, uh, and, and I think that's what's really, really ultimately so disruptive about eco-modernism um, is, is that we show up in that way. Yeah, and it's almost heretical, right? And you, you kind of see that attempt at the by the Green Inquisition to to stamp it out. Like it's it's truly, truly maddening that these voices are starting to pop up, not in the places that environmentalists expect them to come from. And they just don't know what to do about it, right? And no, exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. disorienting. Yeah. And it it's what disrupts these these debates that have been so stuck for so long. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ted, well, I want to be respectful of your time. I think we'll leave it at that for now. But thank you so much for coming on the show. I've learned a lot here today. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, Ted, take good care. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support Decouple as we continue to grow with our new website, transcriptions of every episode, and our upcoming Decouple short series, please do go and click on the Patreon link in the show notes below, as well as go to ratethispodcast.com and leave us a written review. Thanks again. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.